NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. At Kroger, we know the minute a tomato is picked off the vine, the fresh timer starts. The sooner we get our produce to you, the fresher it is. That's why we've completely overhauled our process to shorten the time from harvest to home for our tomatoes, strawberries, and salads. Because we know how much you love fresh produce, we give you more time to enjoy your tasty fruits and veggies at home. So whether you're shopping in-store, picking up, or prefer delivery, we're committed to bringing you the freshest produce possible. Kroger, fresh for everyone. We're going to build a train so big, it can't be stopped. From the executive producers of Power. We got enemies eyeing us, cops clocking us. Comes the new season of Power Book 4, Force. Tommy Egan is the linchpin to breaking down all of these gangs. Egan's too dangerous to be left alive. Power Book 4, Force. Game over. Premieres Friday, September 1st, only on Stars and the Stars app. Red Inca listener. Don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps. This week on Red Inca, we talk to one of the most famous men in cricket, despite the fact he's not a cricketer, but he is a cricketer. Of Hi, this is Harsha. My job title at the moment, cricket broadcaster. Harsha is one of the cricket world's most well-known faces. As a commentator, he has spent years being the lone non-cricketer in a sea of former greats. But the thing about Harsha being a non-cricketer is that he's not. He did play the game. And so in this episode, we talk about his early life following and playing the game and how that changed the way he looked at the sport and commentated on it. Then later on, he gets bored of talking about himself and he starts to question me on the future of cricket and analytics. So a test cricketer said to me once, Harsha, that I trust you, he was talking to me, not you. I trust you, Jared, because you played. It's not that you were any good. I'm sure you were terrible, but because you played and you know what it's like to bowl the wrong ball and drop a simple catch and run out your friend and all those sorts of things, that mattered to him more than me being a good cricketer. And it mattered to him that I had at least picked up a bat and understood it. And that's what I really want to talk to you about today because you were a cricketer. We know you as Mr. Broadcaster, but at one stage, you were a small child with a bat and that has all changed the way that you think about the game. You know, I did a lot of research on this. You were bugging your mother about playing cricket when you were four years old and talking to her about cricket. This has always been your thing, hasn't it? There are no secrets in the internet world, are there, Jared? (laughs) There are no secrets. I actually went back to try and figure out when I might have said that to my mother. Because I said, and you know how little children lisp. I said, I'm Budhi Kundalan. So I figured out Budhi Kundran, who later migrated from India, played, played for Scotland for many years, passed away sadly a few years ago, Indian wicketkeeper made 192. His big years were sort of 63, 64 to 67, 68. So assuming he was so 65, I'm three or four years old. Mm. And that's when I said, I want to be Budhi Kundalan. 
So it, 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 it was just there. My father talked a bit about cricket. He taught me about acute angles and obtuse angles. You play defense, you defend with an acute angle because then the ball goes down. You defend an obtuse angle, the ball goes up. That's playing in the yard. But uh, I absolutely enjoyed playing, playing the game. I'm very hesitant to talk about it because in the circles we move in, the standards are so high that if you tell them I was a club cricketer, I represented my university, which is the pinnacle of my cricketing achievement. It's sort of saying, you know what, I wrote an article for my school magazine. Yeah, but you say that. The amount of people that we have worked with who do the exact opposite of that, who claim to be commentators because they've commentated on one game or claim to be writers <laughs> because they literally spoke their book to another writer. So I think it's very fair. But it also... The reason I'm interested in that side of things is because you've gone on to be one of the most famous non-cricket playing people within the game as it currently stands. And yet that's not fair. It's not fair to you. It doesn't matter if it's you or Jim Maxwell or Dan Norcross or myself. We actually are all cricketers at a certain point. And it does actually change the way that we think about the game a little bit. And you actually sent me a link and I'd forgotten about this, but uh, Satya Nadella, who is the CEO of Microsoft, he talks about a lot, and I, I just read, I think it's in his book, but I just read a few extracts of it. He talks about, on the field, I learned a lot about myself, succeeding and failing as a bowler, a batsman, and a fielder. Now, if you've played cricket, you would have succeeded and failed as all of those things at times. And that's why I am a little bit interested, because there's no way that you can play cricket and it not affect the way that you would eventually become a commentator on it. Uh, there's no doubt at all. Uh, the way I played my cricket and what I looked forward to when I got into broadcasting, there's, there's a lot of similarities in there. I enjoyed, absolutely enjoyed playing cricket. It was, it was a pretty decent level. It was senior, senior division in Hyderabad. So I'm actually playing against the Audranji Trophy players, for example. Sometimes with repetition, sometimes with confidence, but I'm playing against them. And occasionally bowling to them, except that my leg breaks didn't fizz. So people had a lot of time to play them off the back foot. I could bowl the leg break, bowl the wrong run, but they didn't fizz. So they didn't hurt anybody. But I slowly moved up the batting order, but I was a very insecure cricketer because I was always thinking, right, how's the bowler going to get me out? Or if I bowl a ball, where's he going to hit me? And Jared, you might, you might find this. I mean, you, you brought it up, so I'll talk about my cricket. Time I felt liberated was when I was fielding at point. I felt absolutely liberated. No one ever told me where to field. It was assumed I'm point. And the reason was the moment the batsman plays the ball anywhere in my geography, Nobody can stop me now. It's the ball in me. And that to me was such a thrill that I remember when I played first season in senior division, this nerdy guy in glasses standing at point. And there's an Andhra Bank cricketer who's playing Ranji Trophy for Hyderabad, one of Hyderabad's better batsmen. And I'm telling you, you can't take a run in front of me, man. <laughs> and between overs, he walked across to his part and they pointed at me and had a loud guffaw. But to be honest, I enjoyed fielding. I would experiment with fielding. I dropped one or two catches a year, no more. I experimented with fielding on my left and throwing underarm left-handed as opposed to turning around, throwing right-handed. I do a lot of things, but all on my own, never with a coach. So uh, funnily, I like that side better because no one came in my way. So when, I'm, when I'm going out to bat, someone's in my way. I want to draw parallels here because I think there are some. That's a little bit like being the ball-by-baller as well. You, it's a one-on-one -on -one competition with you and a cricket. You can throw to everyone else later on because the interesting thing is I was actually better at fielding than I was at anything else in cricket as well. I was a slip fielder though because I didn't like to uh, run around unless we was in a one-day game and I could pretend to be Alan Border at short mid-wicket. But I like to be a slip fielder because I like the sort of the finality of, of, sort of slip fielding. I might only get 
who balls hit to me all day, but they're probably both going to be chances. And then the rest of the day, I could talk tactics with everyone else. It's yeah. funny how both of us went that way. So your batting never just got along. You, you just think you were two in your own it head? Got long. It, it, it got long, all right. I mean, the year that I got picked for my university side, for some reason, my father kept newspaper clippings. So that's the only year in which there exist any newspaper clippings of runs that I made. When you played senior division, if you got more than 20, then you were in the newspaper on a Monday. And I'll be completely honest, I never went to number 10 or 11, having made 18, saying, please give me your two runs. <laughs> if you're two, not out, you'll be zero, not out, I become 20. They were all actually honestly scored runs. But I was insecure, which is something that's traveled with me throughout my broadcasting career. I mean, I remember there was one game, we were playing against State Bank of India, which was one of the best teams in the league. And I made 34 out of 90 in a senior division game for my side. And there was an Andhra Ranji Trophy player. We were playing on matting. I have no idea what the, we were playing on matting wickets. And I linked into one, went for four pass mid-off, and the Hyderabad Ranji Trophy opening bats went for Shahid Akbar. He's passing me, and he just pats me on the back and says, I didn't know you could bat like that. And honest to goodness, I turned around and he just walked off. But I was telling him, I didn't know either. <laughs> so things would happen. There's so many times I'm playing a ball and I said, did it really go there? Because I never believed I could do it. And when it came to being pitched in the universities, Jared, and there's, there's a story there that's accompanied me throughout my life because it, it changed me. A couple of my friends came and said, do you know you're in contention for a spot in the university side? the combined university, you're playing all India into university. And are you in, you're in contention. I said, me? They said, yeah. And he said, so that's what we've decided. For the next four or five games, you go and bat at number three. I'm batting six, right? Six, seven, six, seven, six. Occasionally five, six. I'm very happy at six. It's a safe place to bat. They said, you're batting at three so that you score runs and strengthen your case. And I said, what if I get out? Hmm. I said, I'm happy at six. And they called me in the local language, a donkey. These are friends of mine, so it's okay. <laughs> But I learned one thing, if you shy away from a challenge, if you say no to a challenge, then you determine the answer to the outcome. You determine the outcome. The outcome is as is. If you say yes to a challenge, you never know what world you're entering. If I had said yes to three, who knows what world would have opened out for me? I might have played one level up, no more. But that is something I carried into broadcasting. Will you do BBC World Service from under a desk with uh, My Michael O'Dwyer's phone in one hand? Uh, a microphone in the other, a paper down, and I'm sitting under the desk and a wicket falls. And I'm hearing the cue from someone from London. Will you do that? Yes, sir. Will you host a telecast? What does that mean? I have no idea what it means. Do I have a jacket? No, I don't. I'll go and buy one. Will you do that? Yes, sir. Will you do digital? Yes, sir. Will you do Crickbells? Yes, sir. I learned to say yes because I should have said yes then. So you're right. Your experiences as a cricketer do determine your, your, uh, your outcomes afterwards. But Jared, I searched in broadcasting for what was dear to me when I was playing senior division cricket, which is everybody plays together. I remember we are playing this big inter-college inter -college final. It's a big game. And we have no chance because the other team has sports quarters. So there are cricketers who are given admission as cricketers in that side. So three or four of them are playing first-class cricket by then already. And we lose by 25. And I've, I've never played a Ranji Trophy in-swing bowl. I can't pick an in-swing from an out-swing, right? I don't, and I, my, my thighs, both my thighs are peppered, red, black, whatever color. And by the time I come back with number 11, I'm not out of the end, I come back with number 11, a lot of our senior players are packed and ready to go. And I said, does it not hurt you? And I always searched for that in the teams I played in. And I always searched for that in the broadcasting teams. And the most fun I've had 
is in the broadcasting teams where everyone is helping each other. Hence ABC. ABC boxed everybody. It was Jim, Tim Lane, later on Glenn Mitchell, for a while Neville Oliver. And not once did they make me feel I was this young kid who'd come from India wide-eyed. So that is why with ABC, I search for places where I feel happy in a good team. Star Sports, excellent team, 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5. Everyone playing for each other. So that's what I search for. And you obviously, I mean, you've talked about, the, you know, your, your experiences. You must have also had experiences where I would say that you're a broadcaster who very much likes to put cricket in the context of it being a game. Whereas yes. there are other broadcasters who like to put it in the context of it being more, you know, a proxy for war and uh, an intellectual exercise. Everyone's got their own little own little construct that they have in their mind. How much of that came about from you playing at that level of cricket and realizing that maybe some people took themselves a little bit too seriously? Or was that just something that you always had within you? No, I played for fun. Not once did I wake up in the middle of the night dreaming that I'm picked for India. Never once. It was never an ambition because you played for fun. While I'm playing, I'm, I, I remember the year I got picked for my college's team in Lord Junior uh, in C Division cricket for the first time. I was playing uh, first year there. I'm doing an advanced diploma in French. I'm doing chemical engineering classes in the morning, doing practicals in the afternoon, and I'm playing cricket in the evening. It was one of the things I was doing. I enjoyed doing it, but it was one of the things I was doing. And it was just so much fun. When I'm fielding at point, unlike at slip, where two balls come to you, every single ball that was ever bowled was going to come to me. And yeah, cricket is a game. I think it's also because I, I grew up in a university campus, a little village behind us. I saw a lot of life very early. And it's only a game. We're privileged to play it, man. Look at other people's lives around. Mm. So even when India and Pakistan are playing the final of a tournament, yes, there's a bit of tension. Yes, there's a bit of pressure. Yes, you want your side to win. But this, I've always told my son, rises tomorrow morning. And We're you... in a skirmish with China. People have not come back home. <laughs> Where's the war? And you, you did play with some pretty serious cricketers, didn't you? Was it Ashad Ayab? Uh, I've, I've probably pronounced I that. I played three years with him, yeah. Three, yeah. three years in the same side. Went he's on an, to play 13 tests, yeah. He was an off-spinner, was he? Yeah. Off-spinner, off-spinner, very good batsman down the order, solid batsman. 89, 90, 91, 88, 89, that period. Played a lot against the West Indies, yeah. Having a friend like that, I always I notice um, someone like Paul Newman who came up with with uh, Nasser Hussain, and I've seen a couple of like people who've come up in the sports industry with with a friend who happened to be an athlete. So you know, one goes off and becomes a writer or a broadcaster, and the other one goes off to be a player. But it always seems that they have a a different sort of view on on things, just because they've seen someone work hard and all the the sacrifice that goes in. I think some for some of us who ha- maybe haven't been around those sorts of people, you know. Oh, he went to an academy and he had all the advantages. And of course, he's going on to be a test cricketer. But you would have seen the opposite of that. You would have seen the, the graft of how someone actually becomes good. Did, do you think that changed anything for you? It did. Uh, there's another name I saw very closely. It was in the same university side as me. We went to Delhi to play the All India Inter University. And then our career sort of moved parallel. I'm this rookie hoping to get a gig somewhere. And Azaruddin is slowly rising up the charts. And that's why I, I did his biography in 93, 94. It's not that we were what we call in Hyderabad Chaddiyars, you know, guys in shorts who played against each other, played cricket with each other. Played a lot against him, knew a lot of stories about him, ex- exchanged a lot of thoughts. One of the most generous, kind human beings I met, life suddenly turned. But when I wrote his biography, I could sense a similar upbringing because of the city we grew up in. So while uh, Arshad sort of finished, Arshad finished in 91, but we're still friends whenever we meet in Hyderabad. 
and he was with the Hyderabad Cricket Association. But with Azharuddin, I could see the change and, and the progress as it went along. And we always spoke in, in the language of our childhood. Mm. Did, you, did you see him become the person that he would ultimately become? Or is that, would that, was no. that a shock to you? No, it wasn't a shock because he was the talking point in Hyderabad for a long time. And he played one innings against us. That is the first two-page chapter of the book I wrote on him, which was simply magical. It was magical. I was moved from points to standard mid on mid wicket because he was playing those risky shots. Matting wickets, we all grew up playing shots like those. It was a magical innings. So we knew he'd be a good player. He wasn't, he wasn't the fielder that he became. But we knew he'd be a very good player. But who thought he's going to play 99 test matches? But he was also a very simple, God-fearing person. So who knows? Um, how did that affect you then when, when the match fixing all came about? I mean, you must have been, especially as a broadcaster, you're in a weird situation and you've written his book, as you said. That must be almost a, a moral question that, that you're putting through with yourself at that point. 94. The book, book, book came out in 94. I think his marriage broke down a year after that. And I was pestering the publishers to, to do that quickly because when I spoke to his wife, she's, she was this lovely, simple Indian Muslim wife. And I knew that there was something happening by 95. So by the time the book came out, there were rumbles, rumbles over there. But uh, the rumors, the major rumors started to surface about 97. The book appeared 93, 94. The rumors started to surface 97. Uh, the ban came uh, 2000. It, it missed the series in 98, 99. The ban came in 2000. And even though we knew it was coming, it, it still hits you. And sometimes I sit and think about the journey that... Uh, life takes you through. And I think, Jared, you and me are happy, very lucky you played just that amount of cricket and continue to enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, that that was one of the things I was quite interested about because his name obviously did come up in the research. And you you are in a in a very privileged position to be able to see, well, two international cricketers, but one who goes on to be a megastar and then um, sadly have a decline. But you get to see the effects of a different kind of fame because you obviously have a lot of fame in your life, but there's a different kind of fame than you get as a host and a broadcaster than you get as a test captain of, of India. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a different level. You know, people expect different things of them. You know, I'm sure you've changed as a human being, but did you, did you see the, the sort of lifestyle change? Uh, you know, did, did you, did you see him be a different boy than he was or, or is it different for you guys? Because you, as you said, you talked in the, uh, the Hyderabad sort of childhood, you know, language, you guys no, have this sort of short. Yeah. I, 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 I saw the change come about, especially mid-90s. I didn't see any change to the mid-90s. Uh, he, was, he was still the same small-town guy who could not say no. I mean, I've, I've written a story in, that, in the book. I've, I've written about it elsewhere as well. I used, to, I used to syndicate his columns for him. And I owed him some money because I'd got the money. I hadn't given it to him back yet. And I said, I, I owe you some money. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm in Mumbai in a couple of days. I'll come and pick it up. And our house is about 60% broken down. There's workers in the house who are trying to. And their jaw dropped because the doorbell rings and Azaruddin walks in. And he goes up to those workers and says, this is my friend's house. See that you do a good job. So, I, so that, that was the person, 91, 92, 93. I saw the change starting to come about in, in 96 once when he asked me to buy a 200-pound shirt. And I said, Azar, I don't buy 200-pound shirts. He said, it's a very good shirt. I said, no, I don't buy 200-pound shirts. <laughs> well, things have changed well, now. You're, you're wearing one now, so it's all, it's all good. Even you've changed. This little white unbranded T-shirt, yeah. Um, yeah. Going back to your cricket, what, what else do you think? I think that a lot of what I do comes back to how I played the game and 
I came up in a very brutal Melbourne outer suburban cricket competition where it was a violent competition. There were, you know, p- people attacking each other and the sledging was, you know, I, I've said this before, but uh, I once batted when I was 15 in a senior game and they were threatening to rape my mother while I was batting. So it was a completely different kind of thing. So I, I grew up there. You obviously grew up in a slightly more friendly um, situation than out of suburban Melbourne at that point. But there must be things that you've taken, you know, from your individual game that you sort of bring across, even if you don't mention it on air, because as you said, you know, no, just enough. I'll, I'll tell you what I, what, the most important thing I picked up was the joy at seeing a ball go to the boundary that you didn't think would go to the boundary. But more than anything else, the emotions of the game, Jared. When you lose a game that you're expected to win, the impact it has on you, you're sitting there in our little, you know, we call it a dressing room. It's just a tiny little thing, but we had a proper pavilion. And you're just sitting there and you're sad. You're sad till the sun rises the next morning. So you know what that feeling is. Or as happened to me once, we are, we are 30 for five playing against one of the best sides in the league and I'm going out there and blah, blah, blah. You never know. We've put together a partnership. We've pulled the team out. It was not meant to happen. So the high that comes with something that you didn't expect, the low that comes with games that you lose, the enormous surprise when you've gone after a catch with hope is your only ally and then it sticks. So the emotions of the game were what I understood. I may not have had the skill to play the game, but at my own level, the emotions of winning and losing and disappointment and coming back home and telling your mother, this is that, 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 that's what happened today and she putting an arm around you. Now, that happens. Mike Hussey, I, I heard a podcast of Mike Hussey where he said that's what his wife did to him when he, when he got back one day. Yeah? So the emotions of the game don't change whatever level you're, you're playing at. It's just that when you fail in front of 20 million people, it's magnified a little bit, but the, but the feel. So that, that is something I, I learned. I learned the smells of the game. A bat, the smell of a bat. I learned the smell of a cricket ball. You know, when, when you're playing on matting wicket, there used to be little glaze on the balls that you played. They're not very expensive balls. So the glaze started to go away afterwards. And then the leather would start to peel off. You're playing on a, on a jute matting wicket. The leather started to peel off. And the smell of that, we, we still didn't have ready-to-play bats. So there was oiled bats. Mm. So I learned to enjoy the smells of the game, the sounds of the game, the round chalk that you had to mark the uh, take, mark your guard when you got there, uh, the shoes with the spikes poking you from underneath because uh, the cobbler had hammered them in from from the back, and so you wore an extra pair of socks. So those were the things that 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 I remember very fondly, and playing for each other, which to me was the most beautiful thing. You're feeling happy that your friend has taken five wickets, for example. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And when you you get into broadcasting quite early, are you 19 when you start broadcasting? Yeah, yeah. My first uh, first class game, yeah. Yeah. So It was that, quite a story, yeah. So from that point onwards, it must be quite hard for you to play cricket. It, uh, it ran parallel for a year and a bit. I, I got picked on my university side in 81, 82, so early 82. But I've done my first Ranji Trophy game in 81. So I'm... I'm going to play a league game, but I'm actually doing commentary on, on, on a Ranji Trophy game that they allowed you to play. So, so that, that happened in parallel for a year. It was, it was a bit tricky. Um, I, I must have it was, it was a bit tricky, but uh, it, it was good fun. Yeah. What I learned in that year, though, when I first did radio commentary, that the pre-television radio commentator was king, man. He was king. It didn't matter whether uh, the ball was square cut. If he called it a drive, it was a drive. 
<laughs> I always say that writing about first-class games uh, that are not telecast is still the best kind of cricket writing because there's <laughs> there's a romanticism that you can put into the yeah. game that the highlights just don't back up. When do you stop playing cricket altogether? And so I suppose what I'm asking is, are you one of those guys who goes down to the Maidans in, in, in Bangalore in your, in your 20s? Or once you become a broadcaster, does that sort of all end once you finish playing university? No, once I finished chemical engineering, I was very lucky. The biggest break of my life, I got into India's top management school. I don't know why. It, it's an insane level of competition, but maybe I had a good CV as, as, as someone who played university cricket, had got a decent rank in chemical engineering, had, uh, had a distinction in French and in my advanced diploma. I actually acted as an interpreter at a chemical engineering trade fair once because there was a French participation in there. So I had this weird kind of CV, so they thought interesting guy maybe. But when I went there, I didn't enjoy playing cricket there that much because there was no intensity to playing it. Then I, I, in my job, I played a couple of years for my advertising agency. But after that, uh, I found that social cricket didn't, have, didn't excite me that much. If, if a ball went between the legs of somebody at mid-off, it was okay. But in the cricket I played, it wasn't. So I didn't enjoy it after that. And I haven't played for 10, 15 years now. Certainly when you... It doesn't matter to you, but when you start getting progressive lenses, you look at the ball through the top half and suddenly it vanishes and the focal length of your lenses when it comes down is very different. And also when I dropped a catch, I, that never happened. I said goodbye. Yeah, that, that no was the end. Uh, no okay. it, that, that's interesting that, that because you always come across as such a love of the game person, but, that, but the, the social cricket thing, so that, that was a big problem for me. Okay, I'll tell you one story. I, I did play one game though, which was the biggest game of my life. <laughs> This is 2003, four thereabouts. I'm 42, 43 years old. Uh, I also played one at the, at the Barrel, at, at Bradman Oval and Barrel, by the way, for the LBW Trust. The LBW Trust was promised a certain amount of money if Peter Roebuck and me went and played a game. So Pete, Peter picks me up at the airport. I can, I can write 1,000 words on the interiors of Peter Roebuck's car. <laughs> Pretty much like his handwriting all over the place. And we played that game. So I, uh, I think I was LBW. Which, and because I was the guest, they didn't give me out. But I played at the 1K Stadium, 10,000 people. It's a tsunami relief game. So there's television people, film people, cricket people. And I bowled. One of the actors called Ritesh Deshmukh caught Azaruddin Bhogle in the scorecard. And then that idiot Mohammad Kaif came and hit me with a couple of sixes. But Rahul Dravid told me, and that's the biggest compliment I've had, he said, forget your bowling for a while, but... You threw on the full from the boundary stated to Parthik Patel's gloves. You got, a, you got a good throwing arm. I said, Rahul, it doesn't matter. Don't ever take that line back. But it was good fun. It was good fun. I'm fielding at points with Sehwag on one side, Harbhajan on the other. That's not bad. He might still have been the best fielder in that ring. <laughs> I'm, I'm 43 years old. 42 years old. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, those are the sorts of games that I get to play in now. And it is quite random, too. You, you, you get asked to be in a game like that, and you're not quite sure what the standard is going to be. You end up with some old English cricket writer lobbing hand grenades up, like Shield Berry does. And then the next, and the, at the other end, you've got Andy Caddick steaming in. Or I, I had to face Steve Elworthy at the Oval one day, and I think I might have annoyed Steve Elworthy with a column at one stage. Uh, so that was a bit quicker than I was. Uh, he's very fit man, Steve Elworthy, for, for someone his age. Uh, so I know what it's like to be in those games and, and to, you know, sort of find yourself in a, in a very weird situation. Um, uh, so, but I do find it interesting though, that once the, in, the competitive nature went out, that, that you weren't as, uh, that you weren't as involved, I almost thought that the social games might be more your kind of style. No, I, I don't know because, uh, 
I enjoyed playing cricket. I enjoyed preventing someone from sneaking a single in front of me. And if they did take a single, I said, I'm going to try and throw the stumps down at the non-striker's end from point, which is not that easy for a right-hander, uh, as opposed to a left-hander who will do it easier. So that, that excitement just, I mean, I started enjoying batting more than fielding and bowling. And I found that the Maidans of Mumbai are so small that you can flick a six over the boundary at square leg. And that, that told me to look at the Maidan scores with, uh, <laughs> you know, a little pinch of salt here and there. But nah, no, I, I didn't enjoy this, uh, the social game at all. Beautiful. Uh, now, you wanted to ask me some questions. So I, I think we've, we've covered harsher the, the, the cricket. And I, I honestly think that it's a very interesting tale. Um, although, you know, uh, mm-hmm. what a weird hero to have uh, one of Scottish India's um, <laughs> finest players in a period of Scottish cricket that no one even remembers as well. Budi um, Kundalan. I wish, I wish I had a coach when I was playing. Never, ever had a coach. We had one for the school team, but he sort of just knocked balls at you and mm. whatever. I remember asking Arshad once. I said, Arshad, my leg break's not turning that much. And he said, you're sprinting to the crease. Give the ball time. And I said, oh, I didn't know that. So I never had a coach. Luckily, that was a big difference. In my early years in broadcasting, 91, 92, the ABC with Alan Marks and Jim Maxwell, telling me little things about broadcasting, making friends with Jim and Tim, a friendship that's, and Glenn thereafter, a friendship that's lasted 30 years. I mean, last year when I was, when I was in Australia, I said, all three of us are going out for dinner. And Karen Tai came along as well, and we had the most beautiful dinner uh, that day. So building those relationships. But then when I started on television, again, no idea what to expect. I'm hosting India versus New Zealand. I don't even know what the directors tells you in the year. No idea at all. But then with Simon Wheeler... And uh, Michael O'Dwyer is telling me little things, what to wear, what not to wear. Uh, and then there were two, two, two series I did. I hosted the World Cup of Football in 2006. Every single day in Singapore, go, going at 4.35 in the evening, coming back at 6 in the morning, have breakfast, go to sleep, get up at 3, 3.30, go back to the studio every single day. And then the 2011 World Cup every single day. I did every single game of the 2011 World Cup from the studio but very good producers. I was very lucky in cricket. I worked with very good producers. I wish I had that when I was playing. Yeah, I, I, that makes sense. I, I had a very similar thing. It wasn't until I was very late in my career that I realized that I, I, I was a leg spinner like you. I had my arm in the wrong spot. And the reason I wasn't getting enough spin was just because it was on the wrong side of my body. It, it's, it's such a simple thing. And also, did you also ball from here? I was very high because I tried yeah, to be much, he, I, much like I, I, I was an off spinner. Yeah, I was an off-spinner initially oh, until, okay. until one day at the Nets, this kid turned up, right? I'm the school off-spinner. This kid turns up and he goes, the ball goes and zips like that. I said, where's this kid come from? He went from being a reserve in the school Nets to playing for India schools in one year. And if you meet Derek Pringle, ask him about Anand Watsil and he said, we just could not. He was, he was doing too much for us. So I said, Future lies in being a leg break bowler. <laughs> so now you're bowling, you're bowling offspin from here. Sorry with that bent arm, is just to get it in frame. You're bowling offspin here. So now what happens? You say, okay, I'll bowl leg spin. So now leg spin, your hand is still there. Mm. So now you're getting the wrong gun a little bit better, but your ball's not turning very much because your hand is there. And then you see Vaughn and he's bowling from here. And I said, oh, that's different. So anyway, you learn, you learn those little things. See, when he said, when your friend says, I respect you because you played cricket, I do know that. If you bowl leg breaks from here, you're not going to get much. Anil Kumble bowl leg breaks from here. Shane Vaughan bowl leg breaks from here. Yeah. So 
yeah, you 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 learn to pick up those those little things. You know what it is to pick up a mistimed shot, especially if you're doing commentary off tube a lot these days. Mm. So if you're doing commentary off tube, just get an instinct. I think that shot is mistimed. It's not clearing the boundary. But I'll tell you what I was. I'm very keen about for someone like me. I've got to stay ahead of the curve all the time because I have no future otherwise. I have to try and be ahead of the curve, and I'm fascinated by analytics in sport. And I'll tell you what it's doing to broadcasting all along. the broadcaster's gut hmm. was king i think he's a very good player i think he's very good batting at number 6 and getting into the bowlers and finishing the game at the end and now there's this kid sitting next next to you the nerd i was when i was fielding at back with point who's saying not saying well in a man was speaking uncle the numbers are telling a different story the numbers are saying the first 10 balls his strike rate is only 80 Next 10 balls, his strike rate is 220. Why do you want to send him when two overs are left? I'm learning left arm. Why is Stuart Binney bowling the first over for RCB? Why is just a change bowler coming and bowling the first over? And I'm fascinated by analytics. Analytics are challenging the broadcaster. So I'm 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 very interested in knowing where uh, I've actually got questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> so it can embellish a broadcast. and it can challenge a broadcaster what are your thoughts on on where it's going because sometimes and i've seen this with a couple of analysts they start to think they're the coach okay so well, where, where does it end so so i was brought in on talk sport basically to be the fourth person or third person voice so a little bit what um zoltsman uh does and um mm-hmm. andrew sampson does uh except that they wanted it to be analytics and not they didn't want this is the 44th time that someone has scored a single off and he's, and is good at that when yeah. it works better in print yeah yeah exactly yeah. and so what talksport wanted was you know butler is coming out to bat what works against butler what we've found is that as long as as long as a discussion with the broadcaster it doesn't matter if they're wrong Does that make sense? There's a certain tension that you that you that you can have along. So if uh, Alex Tudor is in there and he tells me that you know this guy smashes left arm bowling all the time, I'll say, well, that's interesting, Tudor, because if you look at these numbers here, uh, he actually doesn't. He averages 20 against left arm seam with a high strike rate, but 40 against right arm seam, and it, that becomes a a discussion. I think the problem is that a lot of people who do that. and analytics on broadcasting are just passing pieces of paper across or whispering in your ear it's the conversation that is great let me so look at the guys i work with you know mark butcher you know darren golf mark nicholas those sorts of people if you tell them they're wrong on air it then becomes a great 2 minute little moment where we're we're all trying to one up each other it doesn't matter that i have analytics at this point and that they've got you know Well, in Goffy's case, got a hundred wickets, <laughs> or you know, Maddie's case, one of yeah. those, you know, Maddie Pry, one of the best wicket keeper batsmen. That doesn't matter at this stage. It's two different cricket fans with two different perspectives, right? But at the same point, they'll all say, Matt Pry will say to me over and over again, uh, you know, I don't do numbers, right? And then the minute he's uh, he's challenged in his commentary, he sort of slips the headphones down and says to me, uh, can you can you come up with some numbers here? Because he knows that he's hit his knowledge is hit at a dead wall. he can't go any further but he knows that if i come up with analytics he can then bounce off that even if he disagrees with me so i think that can be part of it i just don't think that that has been i think there's a, a very accurate thing that you said you talked about the nerdy guy beside you with the glasses like you being a point fielder 
I think I probably am allowed to be nerdy because I have a broadcasting background. Whereas quite often you guys will get a 23 year old IIT student in who probably knows my, way more about the maths than I do, but he doesn't maybe know how to talk to um, a former test player. Yeah. Now, what's interesting here is Matt Pryor's taken his headset off and said, find me some numbers. Is there a hierarchy in the box? Is the broadcaster the doctor and the analyst the nurse? Is there a hierarchy? Because in course of time, I can see there is a hierarchy in the boxes that I'm in. Mm. Because the analyst wants desperately to impress the broadcaster with the skills that he has. In course of time, I would like to see that hierarchy broken. And you say the broadcaster is there for a specific skill. The producer is there for a specific skill. The cameraman is there for a specific skill. And the analyst is there for a specific skill. But at the moment, I notice a little hierarchy. I remember in the World Cup 2019, we had four analysts in each of the four crews. And good people, good people. And Michael Atherton was asked to do a little analytics piece. And this guy comes to him and said, you know, this is what the numbers are showing. This is what's showing, whatever. He said, but I don't agree. And Michael says it politely, of course. Michael's a mm. polite man. He said, politely. He said, but I don't agree. And he said, I, I can't see myself doing this piece. And he said, no. Because his, he didn't agree with the numbers. And to be fair to him, he found a reason. He explained why he didn't agree with the numbers. But the analyst was supposed to give the broadcasters the number, not the analyst presenting the numbers. So that, that is something I'd like to see change. But what I'm fascinated by with, with people like you do and what a lot of others do is you are doing it in real time. I'm, I'm, I'm broadcasting in real time. So when something happens, I have to react to it in real time. In an IPL game, something happens, I'm suddenly having to relate it to somebody who's watching in Chennai falling off his chair at home while the six, while Dhoni is hit a six. How do you pull out numbers in real time? Because you've got to be ahead of the game almost to say, I think this number could become necessary. Let me have it ready. Which something Mondas Menon is fantastic at in his old world school of stats. Yeah, I think, well, when I started with TalkSport, our big thing was that most statisticians, while being brilliant at what they do, basically tell you what's just happened. Yes. And what we wanted to do on TalkSport was tell you what perhaps was about to happen. So as I, I used the, the Butler one before, but when Bearstow and Roy um, walked out to bat for a one day out in the West Indies and Sheldon Cottrell comes on the ball, and I say, well, Sheldon Cottrell is only playing because of Bearstow and Roy's record. They know that England aren't very good against left-arm bowling. We expect him to take wickets here. He then takes five wickets, and I look like a genius, right? But you and I both know that the next game, he probably goes for 80 runs and, and doesn't take those wickets. So I'm already ahead of all those curves. What are, I'm basically going through all those players and looking for what I would say, and this comes back to me being a writer, but I'm looking for the narrative arc. So I'm not that interested in the numbers. I'm looking at the narrative arc. What is this guy's strengths? What is these weaknesses? What is, what's his kryptonite? Uh, what has he tripped over before? And then what will he come up against in this match that, that, that will come across this? So when Chris Gale is batting, I'm saying they're not going to bowl Adil Rashid for as long as possible because they know what, you know, and I know that England team are looking at almost exactly the same numbers as me and going, well, we can't bowl Chris Gale to Adil Rashid. Chris Gale's already on 80 of 60 balls in this game. We can't do it. So what I'm trying to do then is I know before the game those basic facts and then it's about spreadsheets really from then on in so statisticians generally don't use spreadsheets as much whereas analytics uh, well if, if you know, some of the guys who do what i do actually code the 
the stuff themselves using a uh, computer coding program. I'm not quite at that level, but I have spreadsheets on my spreadsheets on my spreadsheets. So before an ODI game, I will have um, something like 28 different spreadsheet panels available to me so that straight away, if an off spinner comes on, I've got two batsmen at the crease, I go to versus off spin, and then I just find the two batsmen and I can say it straight away. And I look like a genius, but realistically, I've done this work a month earlier uh, and it's just a case of finding it. So a lot of what I do is finding it um, and then doing it that way. But as long as you are reading the game, you do have to read it differently than you do as a writer or as a commentator. Because you know, as a, as a ball by ball guy, a lot more is reaction. Whereas yes. I, I find doing the analysis, and also you know, I, I'm I'm a I'm a weird hybrid because I've done ball by ball. Um, I've done a co-coms. I've now done the analysis. I've done host. I've done almost every every one of those jobs. So I am as someone way. who was a freelancer. <laughs> I'll tell you the perils of being freelance. <laughs> you cannot say no. Yeah, exactly. The option, and because you cannot say no, and you are forced to say yes, you actually become better at more things than you otherwise would have been, because now you have no choice. But I'll, I'll tell you some, something else. Now, what, what, what was it? Yeah, there you go. England are playing Australia, not the semi-final of the World Cup, the game before, in in the league stage. Best mm. Roy opening the venue. I just did an interview on Quick Buzz with, with David Warner a couple of, a month or so ago. And he says, I, I saw look it. At the, yeah, look at the analyst. And the analyst says, Berendorf and Stark might be a good combination up front against Roy and Bester. And what does Berendorf do first over? He gets the Yorker in that, that hits middle, base of middle, which, which is, of course, a, 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 a dream. But so, that, that, happens, uh, that happens sometimes. How do you take into account the mindset of a player? I mean, that, that's an area. Like, Adil Rashid bowling leg spin to Chris Gale, batting 80 of 45 balls, just waiting for the ball to turn into him because no boundary midway gets long enough. But Adil Rashid saying, you know what? I fancy you, Chris Gale. And that confidence that comes through then makes a little difference as well. Saying, okay, I know that's what you're going to do to me, but come on, let's, let's, let's do the challenge. And that attitude very often makes a difference. Or you might say, you know what? This guy bowls wide Yorkers really well to Jason Roy, say. But that morning, he's not feeling great about bowling, about bowling that. So how do you factor that in? It's very interesting. So when I, the first team I worked with uh, outside of a consultancy role was St. Lucia. And something happened on the field at St. Lucia that was just, it didn't make any sense from a, from a cricket logic point of view, let alone an analytics point of view. So I went up to Kyron Pollard after the game. I said, look, no judgment. I just need to know how to do my job better. Why did you go with this bowling change at this time? I said, because you had all the information and you and I discussed it. And he said, he said, uh, um, first bowler I went to when I went, went to give him the ball, he told me he doesn't like that end. And I was like, What? <laughs> like, this guy's only played at this ground like four times. And I was like, okay, well, why didn't you go with that bowler? He said, he didn't want to bowl a second over in the power play. He gets touchy when I ask him to bowl two overs in the power play. And, and that was the moment I realized that the analytics is really, really important. But the other thing that is really important is remembering that these guys aren't that much different than club cricketers at a certain point. They believe in superstition. They believe in form. They believe in all those sorts of things. So I think that what you have to do especially if you're dealing with a captain, because a captain has to make most, the sort of decisions you were just talking about, about whether someone's confident or not, you have to go with the, with the captain. But what you have to be able to do is at the end of the game is talk to the captain and go, why were these decisions made? 
right? Is there something that we can as, so as an analyst, you almost see yourself as a, almost a, a you almost a therapist at times because you're trying to link the captain with the player and the coach. So I can go back to the coach and go, that decision that you can't believe your captain made, he made that because of this bowler. Maybe when we go out and we, we, uh, we bowl and send a week of practice, that bowler only bowls from that end over and over again until he just feels like it's his end, right? Now, that doesn't sound like analytics, um, but it is because in my mind, I need him to be comfortable from either end so that I can get the most out of him with, with, for, from my point of view. So a lot of that comes down to we don't prepare cricketers correctly. So a lot of that confidence and that them feeling, why did that guy not feel confident about bowling the wide Yorkers that day? Had he not practiced wide Yorkers? Had no one told him he's going to practice wide Yorkers? We had another situation with another team where we threw a part-timer in to bowl with the new ball because it was a good matchup. And I'm more than happy with, 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 with to, to exploit a good matchup. That's part of analytics. But when the bowler came off the field, I said to him, when was the last time you bowled with a new ball? And he goes, I haven't touched a new ball in eight months. And I said, when we do training, what ball do they give you? And he goes, if I get a ball at training, <laughs> it's yeah. the old ball against the tailenders. And so, again, you go back to the coaches and the captains. It's like, your gut feeling was probably right there, but it didn't work. And here's why it didn't work. You dragged two balls down because a new ball, as a former off spinner, a new ball in your hand feels different. It doesn't come out the same. At that point, I don't think it's as much as about feeling. It's about as, um, as much about getting as much information as you can about these guys and then how do you help them. So analytics is, I, I look at it as a more holistic way than maybe perhaps other analysts do, but I didn't until I worked with the team and suddenly you realize that guy does feel weird and that guy needs more practice and all those sorts of things and you start to bring them together. I found what you said amusing and I cannot say that on a broadcast. I can say that on a podcast. <laughs> I once came off a 10-15 minute conversation with a very senior Indian player who was a national selector at the time, many years ago. And I came away fearing for the future of Indian cricket. Because he was he, he might have been excellent at standing behind the stumps or bowling something, but the kind of conversation he was having, I said, Oh, okay. I hope there's something more, but I came away a little a, a little worried. But the reason analytics works very well. In a bro- on a broadcast is what is the end purpose of a broadcast? It is to make the game more interesting to the person listening. That is the only reason we are in this profession. We are subservient to the listener or the viewer and our primary job is not to tell him how much we know but to tell him and increasingly happily her, here's something that will make the game more interesting for you. I don't know if it will happen but here's something that could make it interesting and you're saying, oh, They've got the left-hander up against a left-hand batsman in a power play. What could happen? Because the analyst just told me this doesn't happen normally. Mm. So you've just made it a little more interesting, which is finally what, 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 uh, what, what our job is. So uh, that, that's, uh, The funny thing with analytics, and I work in, a lot in T20, but I work in India, where television is advertising-driven, not subscription-driven. Mm. When it's subscription-driven, the analyst largely comes in in the breaks. Because in the six balls, the ball-by-ball man or the expert is reacting to what is happening and things are happening very fast. In T20, in India, where does the analyst come in? Because as soon as the last ball is bowled, we're into a break. We come back when the bowler is running into bowl the first ball. Well, so we, I wonder if... Yeah. Yeah. So no, radio no, is a great right. medium. Radio is a great medium. But here's the dichotomy. Analytics is made for T20 cricket. Mm. Because every ball is... Every ball is a challenge, right? Analytics is made for T20 cricket, but on air, increasingly T20 cricket is going to have lesser and lesser time to use that 
unless you use the bricks better. I suppose part of then then becomes about oh, you use graphics. Sorry, to I was going to say yeah, graphics. Well, that's what I was going to say. Then it becomes how you use graphics. But even T20 on radio, and I don't know how much T20 you've done on radio, but there's still not a lot of time because the teams are hammering around the field. If a spin bowl is on, so for TalkSport, they actually get me to commentate the T20 games because it would be a waste um, me being in the analysis chair because I wouldn't get on very much. And And there's an extra man to pitch. Yeah, exactly. As you know, it's only a couple of games and uh, they're only three hours long. If we can pay one, one yeah. less person, we will. So it does become, it actually becomes a lot easier to do it that way. But, but you're right. I think visual is the way to go. I think there's a lot of very obvious visual stuff that, that analysis. And I think cricket's been quite good at that. I mean, we, we, we look down on cricket sometimes with these sorts of things, but the worm, for instance, you know, and the Manhattan and those sorts of things, you know, those are quite not complicated um, graphics, but those are, those are quite advanced graphics that came about, what, in the 90s in sport at a time where most other sports weren't even trying to put things like that on the screen and cricket was trying to show you more information in a, in a, pretty, in a pretty way. You know, even, even placing batsmen in four quadrants because uh, with, with, with strike rate on one axis and batting average on one axis, and it tells you for the major part of the first two or three years, Barbar Azam had an average of 50, 55, but a strike rate of 120. And if you're playing with a strike rate of 110, 115 in T20 cricket, the longer you bat, the more you're ensuring your team's defeat. Mm. So suddenly the batting average is running contrary to what the batting average does in any other form. Do you know there's one so that I, these, I wish yeah. that, sorry, I was going to say there's Not one right. I wish they would use more in TV, which is, uh, I think it might have been Michael Wagoner, the New Zealand statistician who came up with it. It's so brilliant. Basically, on one axis, you have a dot ball percentage. And on the other axis, you have balls per boundary. And then you have four quadrants and you can tell what kind of player you have. You have the strike rotators up here. You have the AB de Villiers who can do everything down here. You have Chris Gale and the big slogging openers here. And you have the slow coaches up there. And in one moment, you can straight away say, this is this kind of player. It is such a beautiful thing. I just wish that would come across some more. But those are the things that we're learning about the game, you know, as we go through. Which takes me back to my pet theory. I've got (laughs) this pet theory. Today... Once you're mounting a broadcast, the cost of an additional channel is minuscule. And I've long believed there must be three or four broadcasts for every game. There's one which is the cricketers' broadcast, which is full of cricketers with their stories and telling you what's likely to happen. There is the nerds' broadcast, where there's two guys saying, you know what, this is a matchup, this is likely to happen, let's see what happens. I've got these numbers, but you're not inundating with numbers, but you're using numbers as a good. There, there, might, there might be a third with a comedian involved, I don't know, and a fourth with no commentary at all. You and I have had this conversation, I think, on Crick Info about eight years ago. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, I must have been around the IPL and we had a big chat about it and we, we both agree that you cannot do one commentary team in this day and no. age. No, especially when you've got, I think, Twitter you know, and Reddit and all those other things. You've now got all these different opinions. Realistically, there is no one cricket commentary team. I think... I think you're right. I think Sky do an incredible job of commentating cricket in England. But I also think that if I was a 20-year-old turning on and I wasn't a massive cricket fan, I'm not sure if Athers and NASA are quite what I would be looking for to listen to from a commentary um, standpoint. And, and but that's not- you have the choice. But you have the choice. Yeah. You're going into a store. You're going into a store. You've got three brands of chips. And it's the job of the chips manufacturer to appeal to you. Mm. 
Then you've got three channels. It's the job of the broadcaster and the team on each channel to appeal to the viewer. The viewer's king. We should never, ever forget that. We all live at the mercy of the viewer and the, and the listener. So the viewer says, you know what? Let's listen to this Kimber fellow, man. Well, that, Do I listen? Suddenly, Kimber versus Nasser, which would never, ever be an acceptable matchup, is now <laughs> a matchup. Is now a matchup. And you are in the same free market. You might be catering to 100. He might be catering to 1,000 or 20,000. But in your 100, you still have your 100 who want your kind of broadcast. Put Kimber and Hussein together. Not sure it's working the same way. So I believe there should be two, three channels. There should, I mean, once television networks have made all their money out of the top broadcasters, ho hopefully they want this nerd feeling at backward point on one of those. But thereafter, you should allow people you're sitting at home, two guys sitting at home and saying, right, let's, let, let's mount our broadcast. I don't know how it'll work with rights. Let's mount our broadcast. So IPL already do something similar, don't they? They've got the Dean Jones-led commentary, which is separate. Yeah, they've got, then they've got local uh, languages, which I know is a different kind of thing, but, but again. Uh, so, I mean, it seems to be seeping in, but I, I'm with you. It just it seems like a, a no-brainer. I think baseball's been doing it for quite a long time. So the problem is that baseball actually had a big problem because it had the money, the money ball come through. That, that, that seeped into the commentary, and it meant that if you weren't a massive baseball nerd, you couldn't watch baseball commentary anymore. So they had to do something to give something else. And I wonder if that wouldn't happen in cricket as well. Um, uh, it, it's, it's, a very, it's a very interesting thing. But uh, with, uh, with TV companies cutting costs all around the world, I'm not sure that they're about to do that. I was going to ask you about the future of the media. I don't know if you, I've got enough time. I don't know if you do with, uh, with, 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 with two children tugging at you. My, my, my children are so grown up, they don't need me anymore. <laughs> they, they live by themselves. But one of them does at least. Uh, one of the most fascinating meetings I've had came in about April 2016. It's not a good time for me. Right? It's not a good time for me because I've got this call saying, sorry, we don't want you to do commentary anymore. And no reason assigned. That's a long story we won't get into. It's, it's a life lesson in that what I believe was my biggest disappointment in life turned out to be the biggest opportunity as it turns out. Mm. And my life changed for the positive as a result. But this man calls me and says, you know what? Do you want to come and join me for breakfast? I'm, I'm a private equity person. I fund various things. And I'm fascinated. Will you, will you have breakfast with me tomorrow? And he calls someone else from another company it's, it's a, it's a stand-up comedy firm that was doing really well that he's funded and that is now at the next stage. And he said, I want to do that with you. He said, the era of that commentary that you're doing now is on the decline in his view. And he said, I want you to convert what you think is a setback into the biggest business move of your life. So you sit at home and broadcast games. We'll figure out a way to be on the legal side of it you sit at home, broadcast games. I'll have a whole team and an organization. We'll set up a media company. And will you bat at number three? I said, no, because I still wanted to be at the ground broadcasting. I don't know if that would have worked, mm -hmm. but this is in 2016, a venture capital person saying that is where the game is going because the U.S. has already seen that. You know how much gaming, com I'm told gaming commentators make tons of money these days. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, uh, so you, you never know where media is going. Media no, exactly. Media is going. 
Well, both of us were um, on, on Calling the Shots, the um, uh, Dan, uh, Dan Norcross and Adam Collins uh, yes. radio documentary recently about cricket broadcasting and cricket and, uh, sorry, in radio and TV. And you, you do realise that the internet has opened up those other options. And, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here with you if the internet didn't exist. I mean, it, there was no way that someone like I, I would have been able to force my way in. I wasn't at one of India's top management schools. I didn't speak French. I was parking cars for a living um, when I got my big That's break. That's because you come from an egalitarian society where it's okay to do that. I love well, that about Australia. I love does, that about Australia. It, it does help. But to be fair, I didn't get my big break in Australia. I got my big break in England because I was Australian because of the internet. Do you, do you know? So all those sorts of things come together. So it is, it, it's very interesting. I don't know how much you've been following recently, but you know, I now, this is one of three of my podcasts. I've got two other podcasts um, and I've got a YouTube channel. And the, I think the way that people are doing things is completely different. I've just done my first ever video essay, which is almost like a documentary um, uh, in, its, in itself, but it's an animated thing. And, uh, and I've, I've got a couple more coming out shortly. The, the, the options that we have uh, of how we can create stuff in cricket has just gone absolutely through the roof. I had a conversation with, um, with Mike Selvey the night, the night of his last test. And I said, you know, you, you've seen my career. What, what should I be doing that I haven't done yet? And he looked at me dumbfounded going, you've already done a hundred more things than I've ever done. Um, and that's how quickly it is moving. So things like video essays didn't even exist. You know, we will get, we are not that far away. In fact, I would say we've already had a few come through professional cricket tweeters. People who, they, they, they start off being a little bit funny on their own Twitter account. Next thing you know, they're working for the ECB and no one knows they're working for the ECB. Then they're working for the IPL. Then they're working for the CPL. You know, I mean, we didn't even think of as Twitter as a form of writing not that long ago. And suddenly you have people who, that is their job. Um, and that's, that's, you know, crafting a good tweet. In fact, I'm going to quote you here. I remember very early on, you were, you were trying to explain the difference between T20 and Test cricket, and you said there's still skills involved in both of them. If a writer has to construct a tweet, they still have to go about using their writing skills to be able to do that. I don't think we thought about those sorts of things back then, and you were explaining something else, but, it, but it, those sorts of things make sense. And when I talk to young students, I'm just, don't look down on Twitter. Don't look down on Snapchat. Uh, you know, the, cricket is going to have a bunch of TikTok stars in, in the next little while. In fact, the COVID has sort of brought, I don't know if you are a TikToker. Um, they've been after me and I just, they've been after me, but how much social media can you do? That's a very fair point. But that's what I say to the young people now. That all you're trying to do is use a, a medium of either making people love cricket more or educate people more about cricket. Those are the two basic things that we do as cricket storytellers, whether you're a writer or a commentator or any of those things. Who is to say you can't do that on an eight-second Vine video? Or who's to say that you can't do that on, on Snapchat or on LinkedIn or on House Party? Um, you know, all those different mediums are available to you. And I think that it is snobbishness that stops people from going towards those sorts of things. Never look down on snobbishness, Jared. Never, <laughs> ever look down on snobbishness because one man's snobbishness is another man's opportunity. Mm. So I always think that there I've is... I've learned that all my life, all my life, because I've always had to work harder than someone else and had to say yes to survive. Mm. If people look down on something, may they always look down on it because that is your opportunity. Yeah, it, exactly. And so I, I see it the complete other way. You remember this. when we, I, Me and Sam used to make the silly movies, uh, the silly short movies beforehand. We were 10, 11 ashes walking around and the, a few of the English journalists got together and they said, we weren't real journalists. 
uh, even though we were writing for places because we were making these silly videos, we weren't real journalists. The uh, two summers later in England, every one of them was out on the outfield <laughs> making those videos because our videos were so popular that all the newspapers decided that they needed their staff to do those videos. And I still laugh about that because for me, it just doesn't matter what the medium is. The message matters and you find a new way to create. You probably didn't think that you would be doing, you know, the kind of videos you're doing for CrickBuzz. You're a proper TV person, you know, with a huge fan base and yet you're on, you know, online having to do these other sort of niche things. But you're making it work and you, you probably, in some ways, maybe get more access to people because it's a bit more casual. For example, doing interviews on Zoom. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing interviews on Zoom, but... I've always been a slow learner, Jared. I've been lucky in that I've got opportunities. I've always been a slow learner. So my first couple of Zoom interviews, the audio is terrible. My, I'm now on an iPad that Gaurav Kapoor presented to me saying, go use this. And it took me a while. This is the only thing I can do on an iPad yet. I'm still learning my way around. But suddenly I'm saying, you know, when you do an interview, you're sitting someone across and you play off that other person's body language. Mm. You know how that other person's feeling. You spend time calming that person down. You know, you're, you, there's a lot of verbal, visual cues, like there are verbal cues in a good interview and in a good broadcast. I can't do that just now. <laughs> I can't. I'm doing an interview with Baba Razam. I have no idea how that interview is going to go. I don't have time to make him feel at ease. So I've done that on WhatsApp before it started. But suddenly, I'm starting to enjoy doing Zoom interviews. Can you imagine what I thought was impersonal? Are you enjoying them because they, they can come quicker and faster and there's not as much of the rigmarole beforehand? Or are you enjoying them because they're a new skill that you're learning? I'm enjoying them because I have no choice but to learn a new skill. And as I learn the new skill, I'm saying, how can I make this enjoyable? Because if I look upon it as a poor country cousin of what I like to do, then I will look upon it as a chore mm. and I won't enjoy it. And I'm saying, okay, I've got to do these Zoom interviews. You know, how, can, how, can it, how can they be more fun? And I'm doing an interview with Ashwin. It is so much fun. I'm doing one with Hardik Pandya. And Hardik Pandya cannot stop talking because he wants to tell his story too. And we're doing it on, on, on Zoom. It did 2 million views. You never know where, where things are going these days. So that was the last question I wanted to ask you. Where is the future? And you almost, you almost answered that uh, if you're freelance, you have no choice but to explore every, every new form of, of media. My only question is the question that venture capital people, private equity people, investors ask, what is the revenue model? And how long does it remain romance? And at what point does romance have to shake hands with this arch enemy, which is commerce? So when we started uh, our videos uh, before Crick Info, so we did them on our own, I, I, okay, let me even go back further. At no stage in my career have I ever asked how I'm going to make money off this thing. What I ask is, am I interested enough to throw myself into it so that I can make it work, right? There is always money out there if you are creative, if you continue to acquire knowledge, if you learn new technologies, there is always going to be money at the end of it. If you start with how I make money off this, this, this is the thing. There, there is no, uh, maybe outside of Adam Collins uh, and perhaps Mark Nicholas who's just got his big deal, uh, I don't think there's any cricket podcast making any money, right, at the moment. In five years' time, that's not going to be the case. So if you are a young kid with an interesting take on cricket now and you have the energy and the passion and the ability to make a good cricket podcast, 
There will be a sponsor that will come. You will be bought out by a company. There may be other ways that you can make money off podcasts. If you go that way, that's for the venture capitalists to work out. They can, they'll come and, you know, get messages to me in a little while because I'll have a podcast network because I have a YouTube channel. At the moment, what I have to do is come up with the opposite side of thing, which is how do I throw, how do I make something that is high quality, that is regular, that actually, it doesn't matter what the medium is, what, whatever medium I decide on, that's fine that I can do that won't be a strain on my life. So that if, if one, I put one episode up with you and everyone goes, oh, harsh, we've heard him talk a million times. We're not going to listen to that episode. Then the next episode is with some random cricket scientist that I drag up and that gets a million views. I have to not be down, down, down uh, on myself for that one episode that didn't work. I have to know that I have building something that will eventually work. So when you, when you ask that sort of thing, I don't know where this podcast network will eventually go and where the YouTube will go. And now I've got an email subscribing um, um, system that I'm doing. All these different things I'm creating. At the moment, they're making very little money. But what I do know is in six months' time, I will have a lot of work and the audience will slowly grow. And that's when people start to come in. And if you are building things that no one else has ever built, generally, you're always ahead of the game anyway. And then you come in on the back end. And that's kind of been how I build my career, which is probably completely different to how someone who, who um, has a marketing background now, does things. I'll, I'll tell you a story of the biggest breaks in my life. The biggest breaks have come when I've said, I don't know how much I'm going to get paid, will I? When I first, when TWI said, will you come and join us? I did not ask them how much. And one of my friends told me, they pay you $100 a day. Are you nuts working for $100 a day? I said, are you nuts? Shh. I would have paid them <laughs> to get the opportunity. So the biggest breaks I've got are when I didn't ask how much, I actually ended up getting more than I deserved. Not actually, I'm using those words carefully, more than I deserved at a couple of times. And every time I've said, let's do this, the money is damn good. It hasn't happened, Jared. I don't know if there's a cosmic force. I don't know what it is. It's eerie. I don't know if there's another force. Every time I tell myself, this is easy money. Come on, let's do it. It hasn't happened. And every time I've told myself, come on, let's have fun, man. Who knows where this path takes us? I've got more than I deserved. hundred uh, percent. I have had a job offer recently and I literally talked them down. And they were like, why would you do that? Uh, we know what your basic rate is. And I said, because I don't want to do this for four weeks and get paid really well. I actually believe in this project. I'm going to invest my time in this project and make it great so that you'll never want to take it away from me. And it but will I've eventually seen, make money. But I have seen one thing. Beyond a certain point, the romance has to have uh, a cousin walking alongside because you get tired after a certain age and you don't have the same drive to go into 10 different things the way you have at your age. At that point, your romance should have had a commercial angle to it. Otherwise, you're tired and romance, and you're romantic, and that doesn't, that doesn't work very well. So at some point, the romance has to translate into commerce, but that's for another day. You're 100% right. I just think that if you keep following the thing that you're interested in and you throw everything you have in that, the... the the, the cousin always ends up turning up because once you make something that is successful and has some sort of buzz, the money people find you at that point. And if you go looking for the money people to start with, I, I've not found that a True. successful marriage, but thank you True. very may much. It always, may it always be that way for you because <laughs> you're, you're at this wonderful age where 
you want to experiment you don't mind failing you don't mind you know one of my friends told me my one of my friends who's in mergers and acquisitions and he said to me the guy who always wins the deal is the guy who's willing to walk out so if you're willing to fail that is when you're giving your be- yourself your best chance of success but do it at this age I mean, that's the second wisest thing you've said after uh, earlier. I don't say said, too many wise things because you just said the scientist will get you a million views and nobody will see me. I thought the one nice no, thing okay. that you said was about the point fielder at, at, at uh, using his yeah. left arm. Yeah, true. true. <laughs> that's that's yeah. brilliant. You've said two things. We've we've only been talking for you know four hours, and you've you've come I, up with two magical I moments. Actually, <laughs> I actually practiced throwing underarm left-handed. I love and that. I found that. With, at 10 15 yards i saved myself the time of pick up turn around and throw with the right hand anyway there is no better way that, to end with young Ho, uh, young harsha talking about how nervous she was as a fielder that he <laughs> that he trained himself with the opposite hand thank you very much for coming on pleasure jar pleasure best best cheers thank you for listening you can follow my guest at bogley harsha i'm also on the twitters and instagram sometimes as well i don't know other things i'm on things Please review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or anywhere really. The more you share it and review it and do all those sorts of things really does help us and makes me feel better as a person. I want you to give me just a little bit of self-esteem every day when I get up. But most importantly, this podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. I only realized recently how many pieces there were in that sentence, but I'm not going to change it because I really like it. If you can help us out on Patreon, it allows us to make this podcast, our other podcast, Double Century, and we have other podcasts on the way. There's a lot of podcasts. If you can help us on Patreon, it's huge for us. And Redica is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston touches your soul through reverb, and our theme tune is called "The Prisoner" by the Red Brigade. Like this podcast? Why not try Double Century, my podcast on the history of cricket? Want to know why England's first Test keeper was in jail, or the moment when we learned to hit the ball over our heads? Find Double Century in all of your greatest podcast apps. Sports Social Podcast Network.